Hello, and thank you for joining us again on another episode of Frost, a Canadian cold case podcast. First, I have a couple of things I'd like to get out of the way. First is a reminder that Frost is on most major social media websites, such as Facebook, Twitter, MeWe, and Instagram. And we also now have a Patreon page for those who might be willing or able to donate to help keep the podcast going. Also, the other point of business is I hope everybody is holding up well during the COVID-19 pandemic and staying safe and at home. Well wishes to everybody and their family. And lastly, I'd like to recommend to everybody that they pick up Eve Lazarus's Cold Case Vancouver. The book is fantastic and is where I draw a number of the facts for this podcast episode. Alright, with that out of the way, we will be diving into this week's episode. For this week's episode, we'll actually be going back quite a ways to another of Canada's far past cold cases. Today's episode takes us to the far west coast of Canada where we look at a case from Stanley Park in Vancouver, BC. This case has, for the longest time, been referred to as the Babes in the Woods. The reason the case has been referred to this is most likely due to the fact that the unidentified remains found by Beaver Lake in Stanley Park were that of two small children. So the story basically goes that on January 14th, 1953, A park gardener by the name of Albert Tong was cleaning a section of the park near to a place called Beaver Lake. He apparently stepped in some brush and felt a crunch under his foot. After Mr. Tong dug a little in the brush, he came across a number of bones And for reasons that I've not been able to find recorded, it took him until the next day before he informed the authorities. On January 15th, 1953, the authorities showed up to the spot that was also near Prospect Point in Stanley Park to investigate. First officers on scene were Police Sergeant Bud Arrington and Police Constable Bill Lindsay. They used their hands to remove years of debris that had built up over the skeletons. What they found were two skeletons of young children, one larger than the other, which was laying across the feet of the smaller one. Both skeletons had black belts around their waist, and similar brown rubber-soled shoes, reportedly Oxfords. One skull had been wearing a World War II style leather flying helmet and a second Air Force style helmet was laying nearby the larger skeleton. Between the two skeletons were also found a blue metal lunchbox with a white bottom and two handles. Inside the remnants of the last lunch had degenerated into basically sludge. Two other objects were found with the skeletons. Match it was found. The weapon with a broken handle would later be matched 
to the wounds on the skulls of the two children and deemed to the murder weapon. And the other item was a rotting woman's fur coat that was apparently tossed over the two skeletons to further hide them. At least that's what I suspect the coat was thrown over them for. After this finding, a doctor, not a forensic pathologist, was called to the site. The doctor stated that the bones came from a young boy and girl, roughly aged five years to seven years and seven years to nine years respectively. And according to the detectives, looking at the layers of the brush that covered the skeletons and the coat, they concluded the bodies had been sitting in the woods for approximately six years, meaning they had been murdered sometime near about 1947. After the police were finished their initial exploration of the scene, they boxed up the remains and brought them to the morgue. And even though both skeletons appeared to be dressed in boys' clothes, it was still difficult for them to come up with a sex of the skeletons. So they were marked as most likely a boy and a girl. However, over the preceding years, the most likely apparently got dropped and the assumption became that they were skeletons of a boy and a girl. With little else to go on, the police turned to the public and asked for anybody who saw a woman with a young boy and girl in Stanley Park through 1947 to come forward. They did end up getting hundreds of tips, but the leads were all dead ends. It appears that eventually the police contacted Erna Engel Beersdorf. I apologize if I'm saying that name wrong. Beersdorf was a renowned forensic anthropologist who had worked at a number of history museums in Budapest, Vienna, and Hungary before moving to Vancouver following World War II. She was also one of the very few scientists living in Vancouver who had been trained in forensic anthropology. She was handed over the remains and the information from the medical examiner so she could cast likenesses of the children's faces. She believed that the children were of a Nordic race, perhaps Swedish or Norwegian, and concluded that the girl had brown hair, prominent lower jaw, a slender build, and had cavities in her teeth. The boy, she thought, was sturdy and had dark brown hair. The skull will show definite facial outline, chin, jaw, bridge of the nose, forehead, and cheekbones. This is according to Eva Lazarus's book, Cold Case Vancouver. They also had some success in recreating the clothing that they believed the children were wearing. And in the annual report, they showed a store mannequin the size of a small child wearing a Canadian-manufactured red Fraser tartan jacket, beige corduroy pants, brown shoes, and the aviator helmet. They also believed that the boys' shoes sold at the Woodward's department store. They also identified the fur coat as a size 16 and had what was called leg of mutton sleeves. It was a cheap style of coat with a dyed muskrat fur collar made in 1943. From the size of the coat and the woman's shoe that was also found near the remains, the police believed that the woman was a short and stocky five foot three 
weighing around 125 to 135 pounds. The biggest obstacle in all of this, however, was attempting to pin down the time of death of the children. This was not an easy thing, seeing that the date of manufacture for the clothing tended to range, depending on the reports you read, from 1942 all the way to 1947. The photos of the reconstructions and the clothing would later be distributed amongst a large number of newspapers all across the country. National media coverage of the crime was extensive and tips poured in from all over North America. According to the lead detective, one Detective Clarendon Don McKay, who had been appointed to head the investigation team, determined that the rubber-soled shoes the boys were wearing were only available after the war years, so he had fixed the death in approximately 1947. That seemed to be supported by the amount of debris that was over the coat and the skeletons. Further helping this believed time of death along was a tip that was called in by a woman who wished to remain anonymous. The West Vancouver woman told him that she and her fiancé, an Air Force pilot, visited Stanley Park in October of that year. She remembered that day clearly because they had fought. She told McKay a story about a woman she saw who was walking in the park with two small children, wearing a fur coat and carrying a small hatchet. She described what the kids were wearing, and she said that she remembered the two children with remarkable clarity. The witness said the woman she saw had dark hair, a fair complexion, and spoke to the children in a soft, low voice, calling the boy either Ronnie or Rodney. The witness and her fiancé then continued to walk towards Prospect Point, and on their walk back later that afternoon, she said she saw the woman running from the old zoo cages. This time, the woman had no coat and was wearing only one shoe and she was without the children. Because of the clothing, which was described down to the leather caps, the estimation of the date of death, the ages of the children, and what McKay thought was a credible eyewitness account, police focused their murder investigation on October 5th, 1947. In the end, Don McKay believed that the mother of the two children uh, killed them and then killed herself. But after the investigation uh, moved on to following up on leads, the remains were the two boxes for safekeeping. Fortunately, that's a practice that's no longer used today due to the average box causing acid erosion, which is exactly what happened to the bones in this case. Fortunately, even with the strangely clear memory of the report, the case would end up going cold. There's even reports somewhere that say that the witness may have been lying to input herself into the case, but I can't find a definitive uh, report on that. But with the information that would come out in later years, it does make the lead less likely to be involved in this particular case, regardless of if it's true or not. Don McKay himself would continue to work tirelessly on the case for three years and would even come up with a couple of promising leads, but due to restraints, he would not be able to follow up on all of them, and he would eventually move on, and the case would grow cold. It wouldn't be until almost two and a half decades later that the concept that the 
skeletons actually belonged to two boys would come up. The theory appeared when interest in the case was revived in 1984, with anthropologist Mark Skinner deciding to work on the case with his anthropology class at Simon Fraser University. The class ended up putting forward that the children were actually fraternal twins, and that their different sizes were accounted for by different biological growth rates at their ages. Whether this was correct or not, we'll talk about it in a little bit. Over the life of the investigation, the police had filed away boxes of tips about missing girls and boys, and 12 psychics had even offered assistance, including a Buddhist monk who told police that the boy and girl were originally buried in the walls of his house. But amongst the most interesting tips that came in, as described in Cold Case Vancouver, was a tip that came in from the mother of serial child killer Clifford Olson, who had said that her neighbor's children were missing. Now, while Clifford Olson is a monster, I doubt he had anything to do with it, as he was only seven years old at the time of the possible murders, possibly younger. And this would be where the case would go back and onto the shelf for another ten years, or near ten years. In 1996, a investigator named Detective Sergeant Brian Honeyborn, a police officer who had 28 years on the force, was given a team of five detectives and given the freedom to choose which cases he would reinvestigate. He had been raised on this case and decided to pick up the case. Unfortunately, the report from the initial investigations were only two pages long, and he wasn't sure if the file was complete or not, as the boxes they were in were detrimental to the contents. In fact, some of the evidence and the remains had actually been transferred to the Vancouver Police Museum and actually put on to display, so he had to go and collect them from the museum and he would spend some of his team's budget to perform DNA on the remains. The results, while they didn't crack the case, they did finally put to bed the questions of the gender of the two children. They were indeed two boys, and while the Simon Fraser class was correct in their genders, they were incorrect on the fact that they were fraternal twins, though they weren't quite so far off. They were brothers, but they had different fathers. This would have a big effect on the case and would eventually rule out a large number of the previous tips that they would have received, except for those dealing with just two boys. Due to the monkey wrench thrown into the investigation by the DNA results, detectives had to go back and search through all the tips that they had received to see if they could find anything about a woman and two boys. He found a few promising leads and he decided to share them with the media. One was a woman who stayed in the New Haven hotel with two boys but then just disappeared. Another woman from Mission BC who hitchhiked to Stanley Park with her two young boys. The boys were also wearing aviation helmets. Another woman, allegedly a prostitute, who lived with her father and two young boys in a house by the lighthouse at Prospect Point in Stanley Park. And a woman and a man who was seen with two kids at Stanley Park with a hatchet. The woman was said to have disappeared into the woods with the kids and the man. 
and returned later with only the man. She also apparently had blood all over her legs when she returned. While these four particular cases appeared to be possibilities, Honeyburn followed up on all the stories, but surprisingly found that the children in question were still alive or the dates and times did not line up with the actual murder. Of all the stories that I've heard or read in this case, there only seemed to be one left that couldn't be immediately explained. A report in the police file told about how a young sailor visiting from Esqualamet on Vancouver Island, I'm pretty sure I'm saying that name wrong, I do apologize, was on the seawall of the park with his fiance when a woman jumped out of the woods in front of him wearing only one shoe and no coat. The woman then made a guttural sound and ran off. Unfortunately, this story lacks a closing or a happy ending as further testing and investigation has not come up with a identity for these children or for their killer but some peace has been given to the remains as according to cold case vancouver honeyburn decided that he didn't want the children's skulls to remain on display at the vancouver police museum he felt that it was disrespectful so detective honeyburn saved some of the remains for future scientific analysis and he had the rest of the bones cremated he arranged a simple service for the children in may 1997 where he and a police chaplain took the police boat from vancouver's granville island out to kitsilano point and he tipped the ashes into the english bay at the entrance to false creek ironically at the time that this occurred the annual Vancouver Children's Festival was taking place at the same time in the area. Honeybourne said that it added a nice touch to the ceremony. Honeybourne left the police force in 2001, and just like Don McKay before him, Honeybourne has taken the babes in the wood with him into retirement. He still believes that the mother of the children is the murderer, and he believes that she is long dead and that the killer will never be found. He still keeps several binders of material at home to occasionally leaf through and look for new ideas. In the end, I think Connie Byrne was right. I think the mother probably did it. Don't know about the suicide angle, but you never know. I think maybe the police should look at uh, unsolved murders or suicides of single ladies in the area. Also had the thought that maybe if the metal lunchbox is still mostly intact, maybe they can raise some stamped numbers or a maker from the lunchbox. Maybe that might help them narrow down the years, but at least it may be at least help narrow out what years they didn't die in because the lunchbox wouldn't have been available at that point. Hopefully that might help, but you never know. But in the end, Pretty sure the DNA will give an answer at some point in time. But if you think maybe you might have a family legend that might help lead to an identity, please give the Vancouver Police a call. Alright, so this will be a bit of a milestone episode for Frost, as it will be our longest episode released to date. Hopefully the content's getting a little more interesting, and the episodes are getting a bit better, hopefully. Now for our interesting historical criminal facts. This one's a head-scratcher. If I was to ask you when the last witch trial was in North America, what would your answer be? Well, as of recently, mine would probably have been somewhere around, I don't know, 1650s or something like that. Yeah, around 
Salem Witch Trial, something like that. What if I was to tell you that the last person charged with witchcraft that I knew about was actually in, oh, about December of 2018? Make you wonder what was going on with our justice system, wouldn't it? Well, in Timmins, Ontario in 2018, a woman by the name of Tiffany Butch was charged with pretending to practice witchcraft. Specifically, Tiffany Butch, who goes by the nickname the White Witch of the North, will be the last person in Canada to be charged and potentially tried for the offense. Her charges specifically were fraud, extortion, and pretending to practice witchcraft. The allegations are that the fortune teller had scammed vulnerable people out of tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, I can understand uh, some of the other charges, but the witchcraft charge? Come on, that needs to be gone from the criminal code. And that is apparently what they're trying to do. So we'll see what the future will hold on that one. And with that, I shall close out this slightly milestone episode. And once again, give a shout out to Vancouver Cold Case by Eve Lazarus. A great book that you should pick up and read. We may be looking at more cases out of that book in the future. Also like to thank all of our supporters on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and MeWe. And also like to thank everybody else who tunes in. We apparently have been listened to in 19 countries and over 250 cities around the world. I'd like to say thank you to in all the different languages, but I'm only really able to speak in English and I would not do any of the other languages any justice. But in English, thank you from a warm heart. Finally, I have one new promo for you from a new friend in the podcast world called Mad or Bad the Podcast. It's a UK-based podcast, but I'll let the hosts tell you all about it. Hello, fellow podcast enthusiasts. My name is Rachel. And I'm Neil, and together we are a husband and wife duo and the hosts of Mad or Bad, a true crime podcast. Mad or Bad is a true crime podcast with a psychological twist, which takes a look at true crime cases from the UK and around the world. We cover murders, serial killers, disappearances, abuse scandals and much more. We have a special interest in murders local to where we live in England. However, we also love covering other lesser known cases from around the world. We also love discussing psychological phenomena and how it relates to true crime. So join us every Monday for a new true crime story where we discuss crime, murder, psychology and much more. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Don't know about the rest of you, but that sounds mighty creepy. Right up my alley. (laughs) We had a second promo to play for a podcast called Sooner State True Crime. Unfortunately, we've had some technical difficulties, and I'll have to play that one at the end of next episode. Well, that's all for me for this evening. Hope you all have a good evening, and hope to see you at the next episode. Thank you very much.